0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. All right, Colossians 2, verse 20 to 23 is our text this evening. Oh, let's stand. Sorry. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm not sorry. It is to honor God and His Word. This is the Word of the Lord. It is eternally true. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use? In accordance with the commandments and teachings of men, these are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. You remember a few years ago that the, um, the New York City Health Department uh, forbid sugared beverages larger than 16 ounces? Remember that? And now California has forbid straws, but that's a different story. I think the New York, the New York Health Department decided to ban sugary drinks because of a plague of obesity and, and uh, just the, um, the evil of, of, uh, of sugar. And um, and so you couldn't get sugared beverages lar- larger than sixteen ounces at restaurants, at mobile food carts, sports arenas, movie theaters, anywhere. It's uh, I don't know if that's been overturned or if there's been a revolt against that. But um, grocery stores and convenience stores, including Seven Eleven, which sells the jumbo size Big Gulp, would <laughs> would be exempt from the law. However. Which which is funny, and the ban would not apply to fruit juices, alcoholic beverages, of course, diet sodas, or dairy-based drinks. Um, why why are they fighting against these sugary drinks? Why are there? Why does it always seem that there's some new crusade going on against? Um, it's either sugar, or it's against um, coffee, or. Bacon is good one week, and then it's bad the next week. And, um, well, here's what they explain: with at least two thirds of American adults now considered overweight or obese, including more than half of New York City adults, and nearly forty percent of the city's public elementary and middle school ch- students. Fighting obesity is one of the mayor's signature causes, and sugary drinks, a long-time target. Right. So, what a bold. What a bold stand for the for the mayor of New York City to take! You know, he's he's not fighting corruption in the police force. He's not fighting um, terrorism. He's not going to take on uh, you know poverty. He's going to take on sugary drinks. You know, and uh, maybe he needed a win that week or a loss. It, you you don't know. Um, But this is, we see this all over the place. Um, We see the New York City Health Department is saying, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. All kinds of little laws, right? We get little laws uh, left and right. Now, these tiny little laws are what you get when you forsake the big laws. As much as our governing officials are trying to outlaw this and that and limit intake of this and that and limit the kinds and modes of transportation that that you use and, and try to shorten or shrink your carbon footprint and limit the number of children you have because of environmental concerns, they sure are doing a lot, on the other hand, to overturn the big laws, God's moral laws. They will limit your intake of soda and promote... On the other hand, the murder of babies. Think about that for one second. They limit your intake of sugar, allow you and, and not just allow you, but promote the practice of murdering babies in the womb. They will implement a million little rules and do all they can while implementing those little rules to overturn God's laws. Just ten of them, right? There's just ten. Ten. Isn't isn't that what the Pharisees did? They had all sorts of do not handle, do not taste, do not touch rules. But they didn't care that much about God's moral law, right? They had a few little laws like these. Here are some laws of the Pharisees. They taught that on the Sabbath, a man could not carry something in his right hand or in his left hand across his chest or on his shoulder. Right? So you couldn't... You couldn't carry like a backpack across your shoulder. You couldn't. Um, you couldn't carry anything in your right or left hand. But he could. He could carry something with the back of his hand, with his foot, elbow, or in the ear, on the hair, in the hem of his shirt, or in his shoe or sandal. Right. So. So not. Not. Like you would normally carry, but you, could, you had these other options. On the back of your hand, and your shoe, you could, you could do that. On the Sabbath, one was forbidden to tie a knot. You could not tie a knot, except a woman could tie a knot in her girdle. Whatever that is, I'm not, I'm not sure what that is. Zeke, what? It? So if a bucket of water had to be raised from a well... One could not tie a rope to the bucket, but a woman could tie her girdle to the bucket and then to the rope. I mean, that's the sort of absurd things that, that happened to get around the little laws. Meanwhile, what were the Pharisees not doing? They were not honoring their father and their mother, right? And Jesus condemns them for being serious about these little man-made laws while neglecting God's laws. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. And then Luke eleven says, "But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden. What's rue? R U E. Who knows what rue is? Does anybody know? It's not gravy. No, it's not. It's not a little, uh, a little fat and a little." Um, I don't know. We'll we'll need to somebody um, somebody Google that. It's a vegetable of some type, I believe. So for you, pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. So so they're concerned to pay a tithe of whatever rue is, and yet they neglect the love of God. That's a serious serious misjudgment. A serious lack of of. Direction, But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Now, the Pharisees didn't do this because they thought they were keeping the laws of God. Right? They they did it precisely because they thought they were keeping the laws of God. Jesus teaches them that they are, in fact, annulling God's laws. They're annulling them. Matthew 5.8, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So the Pharisees had the appearance of righteousness without the reality of righteousness, right? The appearance. They kept a thousand little rules, but they did not, did not pursue the love of God. They didn't pursue righteousness. They didn't pursue faithfulness. They didn't pursue God's laws. They were masters of doing what these false teachers in Colossians were trying to get the Colossian Christians to do. And here to a whole battery of little laws and base the evaluation of your righteousness on how well you keep all of those little laws. See what the Apostle Paul says about all those little laws in Colossians. Several things are implied and several things are explicitly stated. First, those who have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world don't submit to such things. Hey, those who have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world don 't submit to such things such little laws second these man made rules, even though perhaps at times prudence are elementary principles they 're elementary they're they 're not deep they're they 're preschool right they're they 're not graduate school in god 's laws they 're just they're they're they 're They're easy, they're light, they're superficial, right? They're basic, it's the the basic walk. Third, it says they are destined to perish with use. Unlike what? Unlike the law of God, which will never lose one jot or tittle and is eternally true, right? All these, I mean, how many laws, how many rules... Uh, how many faddish sort of rules were there in the 1950s that have, that, that have faded away and they're no longer seen? How many rules last year were there that, you know, that your style of glasses had to be a certain way? And now that, that has faded away for, for new rules, right? And so these things pass away with use, but the law of God never passes away. It is eternally true. Fourth. They are made up by men. These little laws are made up by men. They are in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. Right? They don't derive from the word of God. They aren't eternal. They aren't the mind of God. They're just little rules that somebody uh, made up. Fifth, they look good. They look smart. They look wise. They look religious. Self-abasement and the harsh treatment of the body are impressive, aren't they? Self-abasement, harsh treatment of the body. We respect people who, who train and train and train and train so that they can climb a tall mountain. Right? We respect them and it's impressive. They get their bodies in shape. They Their blood has a certain amount of oxygen that allows them to do these things. And they get it's it's um it's impressive work but but doesn't account for much, so it looks good, it looks smart, it looks wise it looks religious and that that's what entraps us at times. We see somebody living the little laws and it's impressive, and we think, well, I want to be impressive right I want to impress people i want and and so we begin. We begin pursuing those things ourselves, and where it gets wicked is when you begin thinking that that pleases God. That that is righteousness. Rather than just impressiveness, it's righteousness. Um, back when I preached in the book of James a long time ago, um, I, I talked about Simon Stylites, or Simeon. Simeon Stylites, is it Simon Simeon? It's Simeon. Simeon Stylites. Have you guys heard of Simeon Stylites? Um, In order to get away from the ever-increasing number of people who frequently came to him, he was like a a guru, a, um, a monk, for prayers and advice, leaving him little, if any, time for his private austerities. Simeon discovered a pillar which had survived among ruins, formed a small platform on the top of the pillar, and upon this determined to live out his life. He climbed up on there and determined to live the rest of his life on top of that pillar on a little platform. Right? It, it has been stated that as he seemed to be unable to avoid escaping the world horizontally, he may have thought it an, an attempt to try to escape it vertically. For sustenance, small boys from the village would climb up the pillar and pass him small parcels of flatbread and goat's milk, When the monastic elders living in the desert heard about Simeon, who had chosen a new and strange form of asceticism, they wanted to test him to determine whether his extreme feats were founded in humility or pride. They decided to tell Simeon, under obedience, to come down from the pillar. If he disobeyed, they would forcibly drag him to the ground, but if he was willing to submit, they were to leave him on his pillar. St. Simeon displayed complete obedience and humility, and the monks told him to stay where he was. The first pillar was little more than four meters high. Four meters is what, 15 feet? Uh, four, 12, yeah, 15 feet. But his well wishers, his well-wishers subsequently replaced it with others, the last in the series being apparently over 15 meters from the ground. So 15 meters is what? 50 feet-ish? Something like that. At the top of the pillar was a platform with a baluster, or a baluster, baluster, which is believed to have been about one square meter. So he's living up 50 feet in the air, one square meter with some sort of little fence around it. According to his hagiography, Simeon would not allow any woman to come near his pillar not even his own mother, reportedly telling her, if we are worthy, we shall see one another in the life to come. Martha submitted to this. Remaining in the area, she also embraced the monastic life of silence and prayer. When she died, Simeon asked that her remains be brought to him. He reverently bade farewell to his dead mother, and according to the account, a smile appeared on her face. Edward Gibbon, in his history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, described Simeon's existence as follows. In his last and lofty station, the Syrian uh, Simon the Stylites resisted the heat of 30 summers and the cold of as many winters. Habit and exercise instructed him to maintain his dangerous situation without fear or giddiness and successively to assume the different postures of devotion. He sometimes prayed in an erect attitude with his outstretched arms in the figure of a cross, but his most familiar practice was that of bending his meager skeleton from the forehead to the feet, and a curious spectator, after numbering 1,244 repetitions, at length desisted from the endless account. The progress of an ulcer in his thigh might shorten, but it could not disturb the celestial life, and the patient hermit expired without descending from his column. So there's some serious, harsh treatment of the body. Just imagine no human contact, um, no privacy, uh, up 50 feet in the air, which sounds terrible to me, on a meter platform, uh, being dependent on others to bring you food, living out in the elements, the heat of the summer, the cold of the winter, And then the repetition. What did he do up there? Well, he prayed just repetitious prayers. Going through the same motions. And and unfortunately, he thought that to be righteousness. He thought that to be righteousness. Right? To withdraw himself from any temptation. To withdraw himself from the world. To withdraw himself from the church and from society. And sit on top of a pole. Doing... <clears throat> doing nothing. So, so that's impressive, right? So these these this harsh treatment of the body is is impressive. Six, there these rules these these worldly rules are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Why? Why are they no value against fleshly indulgence? Because they are fleshly indulgence. They are doing what you want to do. They are doing as is easy right it's not saying no to the flesh it's essentially saying yes to the flesh there are certain practices which have the appearance of wisdom for christians but which are of no value in actually dealing with the flesh this is because this kind of asceticism does not mortify the flesh it is the flesh right it's your flesh just doing what you've told it to do this is why anyone serious about the Christian life will want to guard himself against falling into this particular kind of trap. The traps that have the appearance of wisdom are the camouflaged ones, right? They, 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 um, they only have the appearance of wisdom. Let me give you an example of this. This is hipster Christianity, right? Hipster Christianity. These are the Christians who, whose identities are more wrapped up in shade-grown coffee than in... God's Ten Laws, right? What, whatever kind of coffee it is now. I think there's coffee that some animal eats and poops out, and it's supposed to be amazing. And so that's, you know, that's righteousness now, if you can get your hands on that coffee. You know, it's, it's those Christians, and it's those Christians whose identities, now don't get me wrong here, some of these things are fine and good and, and is good stewardship, but it's when Christians wrap up their their religious identities in these things where um, we go off the rails. You know, it's, it's the minimizing of carbon footprints. It's intimately knowing the latest art movies in order to build bridges with culture. You know, it's, it's free-range pork. I, I use the chicken example too much. I've moved on to free-range pork. Um, because think of the, I mean, have you ever been to a pig bar? It's horrible. It, it really is. It is horrible. But free-range pigs are actually um, pleasant to look at and, um, and happy. So I'm all for that. Um, all of these things, though, especially today, you know, and we could, we could list a thousand different things. All these things have the appearance of wisdom. They have the appearance of good stewardship, of, God, of love of God's creation, compassion for third-world countries, evangelistic zeal. It all appears to be that. They look good, but these laws eventually become rules that must be lived by, lived by or else you are proving you are ignorant and unrighteous. If you don't live by them, you're proving your unrighteousness. You're a backwoods Christian. Right? You're a Christian who is uninformed and, and um, misled. Uh, you know you imagine somebody saying, dude might know his Bible, but can you believe he eats at KFC? Right? KFC. KFC is the most processed food you could possibly put into your body. It's terrible. It, get, it makes my hands go numb when I eat it. I'm serious. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not telling you not to eat it. I'm just telling you what happens to me. Um... <laughs> but but that's that's how we get we make these we have these fads we have these man-made rules that become our standard for righteousness because it's easy to make a quick judgment about people it's easy to it's easy to um, to see where somebody falls on these these uh, on on your um, rules list but true righteousness true truly keeping the law of god is intensely difficult, but intensely profitable, right? <clears throat> what should the Christian be concerned about? What should the Christian be concerned about? Should the Christian be concerned about about um, knowing who picked his coffee? I mean it's interesting it's not necessarily bad. Right? But what should he be concerned about? He should, um, well, look down at um, verse 5 of chapter 3 in Colossians. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Right? Here, Paul gives a list of where you can expend your energy. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. In verse 8, but now also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. That's pursuit of righteousness, right? That's the pursuit of keeping God's laws. That's the third use of the law, right? You see how we are tempted to make rules that are easy to keep, that in the end have no value against fleshly indulgence. Right? If your righteousness is knowing who picked your coffee beans, it doesn't help you fight your greed. It does not help you fight your lusts. But you might be able to boast about it. You might be able to get some, um, you know, some some fist pumps, bumps. Um They have no value against fleshly indulgence. Meanwhile, we we neglect the weightier matters of God's law and the fight against the fleshly indulgences the Apostle Paul mentions in chapter 3 in which we know so well in our lives. The temptation of all of us, uh, that all of us face is this. We all want to base our righteousness on something little we can easily accomplish. Like boycotting companies that give money to certain causes. Man, it makes you feel good when you don't go to Starbucks. Right? You are, you are fulfilling God's law when you don't go to Starbucks for your coffee. Or eating ethically raised meats. Or not drinking alcohol. Or homeschooling your children. Or not homeschooling your children. Or wearing starch shirts to church. Or refusing worship played on instruments that don't have keyboards. Now, again, don't hear what I'm not saying. There may be good reasons, prudent reasons, wise reasons to live according to some of those rules. You may have good reasons for them. But the minute you make your own rule the standard for righteousness... You've forsaken God's law. You've forsaken God's standard and replaced it with your own easy-to-keep, man-made, low-bar righteousness. You've become more holy than God, adding the 11th commandment to his list of 10. Jesus said... Jesus said that we will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless our righteousness surpasses that of the one whose ethic, whole ethic, is based upon their eating of only locally grown organic vegetables. He said that. That's essentially what he said to the Pharisees. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, um, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. We will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless our righteousness surpasses that of the teetotaling man who's Whole ethic is based upon whether or not you ever let any drop of alcohol touch your tongue. We will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless our righteousness surpasses that of the denim and wooden jewelry wearing homeschooling mother. Whose whole ethic is based upon where her children go to school and what curriculum choices they choose. Our righteousness has surpassed all of those. A righteousness has to be based upon God's law. Concern yourself with these things, the high bar of God's law. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make a graven image and bow down to worship it. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not commit What's next? What's number six? You shall not no murder. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. Now is there enough there to to work through in a day? Is there enough there to do self-analysis? Is there enough there to, um, to call, cause you to cry out to God that you might have the righteousness of Jesus Christ? True righteousness. Not the righteousness based on locally grown, right? But the righteousness based upon God Almighty's eternal standards. And where you fail in keeping that standard, which is hard, cry out to Jesus for His mercy. Our temptation is this. Because the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, because it is that, it, it is truly a standard for righteousness and it is actually of great value against fleshly indulgence. But it cuts. It cuts. It does surgery. It's not something you can, you can really ever boast about. Because we're lawbreakers. Right? I mean, tithing mints? We could all be perfect in tithing our mints. Right? It's a weed. It grows like crazy. Just give 10% and you're, you're righteous. No. The word of God, it cuts. And we have a tendency to make substitutions of our little laws for God's laws because of the way that it cuts against us. Examine yourself. Are you doing this? Are you doing this? Are you substituting? Are you Are you lifting up your head not because you're walking in a manner worthy of Jesus by keeping his laws? Or are you are you lifting your head in the morning with joy because, because you wear the proper clothing that's stylish, right? You've got the right kind of shoes for this month's fashion. Or, or you don't use hair product, right, which is righteousness, Examine yourself. Are you doing this? Why are you doing this? It could be that you really don't like God's law and, and, and God's laws and, and have a guilty conscience. So you're trying to you're trying to keep little laws as a substitute for God's laws. Or it could be that you don't realize this. You don't realize that you have grace in Jesus Christ. You have grace in Jesus Christ. He has kept the law on your behalf and you've forgotten that no flesh will be justified in his sight through the works of the law, right? In other words, you think too little of Christ's work on your behalf and think that you've got to fill the gap somehow. So some of us make, you know, I think there are sort of two paths when it comes to these little laws. Some of us make little laws because we just want to ease our conscience, which keeps breaking God's big laws, just tired of breaking God's big laws, I'm going to make a law where because I make my coffee, um, what is that new way, that, that cold, cold press coffee? Because I make my coffee that way, I've got something to boast in before others. I've got something to be encouraged about. I mean, we do this. It's so crazy. It's so crazy. Right? So some of us make those little laws because we keep breaking God's big laws. We're, we're unhappy with God. And we would rather have another God. And so we substitute all these other other laws. There must be something I can do. We say, some of us on the other hand, think of this, some of us aren't like that. Some of us on the other hand make little laws because we just can't accept that God's grace is free and unearned. So we make little laws because we we just can't believe that God's work through Jesus dying on the cross would actually remove our sins from us as far as east is from west and so we think okay I'm going to make up some little laws so I can earn some of this salvation that God says he gives us freely but I just can't accept that free grace right so some are breaking God's laws and have a guilty conscience and so they make laws and some are just not willing to accept the freeness of the gospel and God's grace. So they make up little laws so they can say to God, God, I've done what you asked me to do. <clears throat> there must be something, whereas the, this this side says, there must be something I can do. This side says, there must be something I must do. Romans 8.32, though, says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for all of us, how will he not also with him Freely give us all things. Freely. In 1 Corinthians 2.12, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. So that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Some Some respond to their sinfulness by reducing God's law and then attempting to maximize their righteousness by keeping little laws. Those of us like that are the Pharisees, right? Others think such a response is ridiculous, knowing that they can't even keep little laws perfectly, but they make an equally tragic error. They doubt the magnitude of God's grace. They aren't stupid enough to make little laws. They despise legalists, but they sin by thinking they don't qualify somehow for the grace of God. They think that God somehow holds their sins against them. The reality of the situation is what immediately precedes our passage in Colossians. In verse 13, it says this When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That's the reality. Right? That's the reality. That's why, that's why in attempting to keep God's big laws, there is no need to make little laws so that you can keep them. The certificate of debts consisting of decrees against us has been done away with in Jesus Christ. We have been forgiven. No need for little laws. The, little, the big laws are there. We give our attention to the big laws. They're profitable for our work against the flesh. And praise God, when we fail, there's Jesus Christ who is our righteousness. So don't make little laws and ignorantly seek to justify yourself. Conversely, don't doubt the magnitude of God's grace and proudly despair. Jesus Christ is our righteousness. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, forgive us for, being, for, for adding to your law. Forgive us for, for being very clever about our righteousness. And clever because we, we see the standard of righteousness in your word and and we despair. Father, you haven't you haven't told us to keep your law in our own power. You have put your spirit within us, you've given us an example in Jesus Christ. Father, and you have given us all that is necessary for godliness. And so, Father, I pray that we would not do this, this game of, of making new rules of do not taste, do not touch. But, Father, that we would, we would meditate on your law day and night. And that we would truly have ammunition against our fleshly indulgence. That we would mortify the flesh and the passions that wage war against our spirit. Father, we praise you that you have rescued us from our sin. We praise you that Jesus kept the law. We praise you for your grace that's freely given to your children. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.